In this episode of Collecting My Observations, we get back into the conversation about death and dying in the ICU with one of the nurses in the neuro and the surgical ICU. Alyssa brings in the perspective of what it's like to be at the bedside when a patient and their family is going through the tough process of losing a loved one. Listen along to hear how she got into nursing, what her experience has been like working in the neuro ICU, and how we can all do a better job at helping patients and their families get through this tough time. Welcome to CMO. Welcome to Collecting My Observations. Enter into the stream of thoughts that flow through the mind of an ICU fellow who is on his way to becoming an anesthesiologist and intensivist. This is where patients live on the verge of life and death. So nurses have always been a very integral part of my career ever since I was in college. When I was in EMS, the providers who I would be dropping my patients off to in the emergency department were nurses, and those were the people I would be giving my reports to. One of my first jobs after college was in the emergency department as a ED tech, and I would basically sit alongside the nurses and help them with whatever they needed to do. And they really showed me the ropes in terms of getting myself off the ground and becoming the provider I am today. Now, this episode, I'm going to have Alyssa McNeil on with me, who's one of the resource nurses for our neuro ICU and our surgical ICU. And part of the reason I brought her in was because she is one of my best and favorite cheerleaders of the whole Keywords by Kenny project and is always encouraging me to keep going with this. And she's also someone who I've seen in a leadership role as a resource nurse who still does bedside nursing. And I think that's a very valuable position to be as a nurse. Nurses are very integral to patient care. They're the ones who spend the most time with patients. And honestly, I think having good relationships with the nurses that I work with help make up for some of my shortcomings as a physician. And I can give you one example of the times when I really use their influence and their resource. And that example is anytime I go to extubate a patient, I will always ask my nurse and say, do you think this patient's ready to be extubated? And I can probably count on my hand the times where I've gone against their advice, but majority of times I take their advice and it ends up being a successful extubation. Now, end of life care, their role becomes so much more integral than just bedside nursing because not only are they taking care of the patient, they're also guiding and assisting family members through this process of, as well. And those are the people who will really remember these moments for the rest of their lives. And I don't even know if all nurses, especially when they first start, realize just how important they are in that role. Now, Alyssa has been at this hospital for seven years now and obviously has worked her way up to a resource nurse. And I think it's going to bring a really awesome perspective into this episode. So thank you, Alyssa, for taking the time out to join me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. I'm honored. So what brought you into nursing in the first place? Oh, wow. I age myself here, but uh, it actually, I, it was my mom. Um, she's not in the medical field at all. I really wanted to be an interior decorator. And my mom said, Alyssa, no, like that's not you. You shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. And I was like, I, I don't, mom, like, She's like, nope. And my grandmother, my mom's mom, was sick at the time. And mm. she's like, you cared for her like 
you had no issues. You were never scared of her. She had actually a brain tumor Mm. and she looked different. So I never had that fear, even though I was a young kid at that age. So I was like, you are a natural. You have to go into nursing. And till this day, I tell my mom, thank you for doing this because I'm in the right career. I have terrible decorating senses. <laughs> I should not have gone into interior decorating. So I was like, thank you, mom, for steering me in the right the right direction. Moms always know best, it seems. They do. They do. How old were you uh, in that conversation or like that moment in life? Um, she di- um, she passed away when I was in middle school. So it was probably a teenager, like wow. 12, 13. Yeah. Wow. And when you say that you were already helping your mom take care of your grandma, like do you remember specific scenarios that you were doing? She was uh, in home care. So she mm. came home on hospice. She had a trigeminal nerve tumor. Um, it was actually met to her brain from her colon cancer that she had when she was in her 30s. But she passed away in her 70s. And she all she wanted to do was die at home peacefully. And um, she did. And it was the help with my mom and the five other um, siblings that my mom has and me and it was I was still young but at the time she just that's what she said before she was unable to speak she said you know all I want is to be at home with my kids and go peacefully Hmm. um the one thing she did say is nothing she before she even passed away the one thing she said was before I um whenever like everything was finished she said nothing is finished until a sweet some sweetness mm-hmm. so <clears throat> this is going way back but uh when she was on her deathbed she was comatose but the um nurse that was there was like i she has is she like waiting on seeing on someone is there some other family member that she needs to see and um we were able to remember that she always wanted a little sweet. So all we did was rub a little bit of apple pie on her lips and Mm. she probably passed within like 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So what a beautiful story. Yeah. And I guess after that, I decided nursing was my calling. (laughs) I can see why. Yeah. That's really, that's a really beautiful story. Um, So, so you went to nursing school, I'm assuming. What was your first job out of nursing school? Uh, I got a job right out of uh, nursing school into a step-down unit uh, at Leahy in Burlington. And it was primarily uh, neuro-based. Hmm. How long did you do that for? I did that for about two and a half, three years. And Beth Israel was also opening their step-down unit at the same time. Um, that I was looking for a position and I said, well, I might as well help. I was in a step down unit. This could be a good transitioning for me and also to be closer into the city. And then I stayed in this step down unit for a year before I moved into the ICU. What made you transition to the ICU? 
I think it was just acuity. I just wanted a change. I felt like I was ready. I took my SCRN, the stroke certified um, test, and I, I felt, you know, like I feel like I'm conquering these patients right now. I think I want to challenge myself a little bit more. So I ended up mm. deciding to go into the ICU, which was across the hall. And it was a great fit because I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know much about board exams for nursing. Um, so take me a little bit into like what that examination looked like for you. So that exam is different than like your NCLEX where mm -hmm. you just take your registered nurse exam that like covers everything that you need to know, but uh, you can specialize it. You can take critical care nursing exams where it specializes in just critical care. Uh, the one that I took was stroke certified. So it just specializes in all types of strokes, whether it be pediatrics and geriatrics. It So mm -hmm. basically it was all on strokes and aneurysms and anything to do with like aggravation to the brain. So we had that. I took that right after I was in the step down unit in neuro for a year and um, got that. And that's when I decided to move into the IC. Have you always been interested in neuro since your grandma passed away? Was that kind of the biggest inspiration for you? Yeah. Yeah. Now being a part of neuro and the SICU, I the surgical ICU, I definitely am I like both. I like a change mm -hmm. of pace. Uh so I do like the change between the two units, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I imagine over the past uh, seven years now, you've stepped up into the resource nurse role. What does that role entail? So basically, we have eight beds in each unit, and there's a resource nurse, we call them the little R, in either both units. Uh, they usually take one patient. And with the eight patients, we usually have five nurses, which makes one of them have one patient. And another person be singled as well. So those are the usually our sickest patients. Mm -hmm. um, with that little resource that's in the units, they always still have a patient. So during the Monday through Fridays, um, me, there's another, there's two other resource nurses and uh, we basically oversee both of those units, uh, deal with like bed facilitating, figuring out switching if we need to like staff differently if um, we have higher acuity and SICU and neuro is different, we'll switch around with that. Uh, we definitely deal with all different multidisciplinary teams uh, within every unit, family members, uh, any patients that's we just are like an extra help helper B as well, which is what I like to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, we do the backside of like payroll, staffing, whole nine yards. Behind the scenes, you told me that you're still in school and you ultimately have goals beyond what you're doing right now. Um, do you want to get into a little bit about kind of how you see your career playing out in maybe the next five years? Sure. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Which is a totally fair, that's a totally fair answer. I would probably yeah. find myself saying the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I Beth Israel um, is helping us go to school for our master's and uh, I'm stoked to be a part of this cohort. 
So it's a Simmons master's program that's focused on nursing administration and leadership. Uh, It was just kind of a perfect segue for where I am in the position I'm in now. Uh, I'm learning so many more communicational skills, dealing with terrible situations or hardships and Mm. So it's it's helping me right now. I don't necessarily know where or what I will use it for, but I, I know that continuing as edu- education will always be a good thing. So that's that's kind of where I am. I I mean, who knows if I want to stay bedside forever, if I want to mm-hmm. move towards the administration side of things. Um, I guess we'll have to see. So mm. awesome. Yeah, I do think I'll stay for in Beth Israel for for a while. And uh, a couple of things that you hit on in terms of what you're learning in school, like communication and handling tough situations, uh, really sort of epitomizes what this series is all about, which is about death and dying, which unfortunately is a relatively common experience in the ICU. And I think you can probably relate to this. There are some situations that go very smoothly in terms of patients passing away. And there's other scenarios where you leave work feeling like we could have done a better job. And medicine yeah. is very much a interdisciplinary role like you've already alluded to, and it takes a lot of different members. So how do you see nursing playing a role for patients when they're at the end of their life? Uh, it's definitely crucial. Um, I feel like especially knowing where the patient is at that very moment it's kind of just where their navigator, where their voice, uh, whether or not they have family or not, we've been taking care of them for however long. If it's the day before, if it's those 12 hours, we want to make sure that no matter what, they have a dignified and comfortable transition. And I think helping helping the patients, helping the families, it's it can be very challenging, but I think especially in the ICU, we've had, unfortunately, dealt with it a lot. So most of the nurses that I work with do an unbelievable job, and we kind of take it like a grain of salt, unfortunately, because we're so used to it. But I think we that's one of our strong suits for sure, because we're, we deal with it a lot. What, what are scenarios where when you look at your colleagues in the ICUs where you're like, that person did a phenomenal job advocating for their patient. Like what specifically do nurses do that really help patients in that scenario? Um, I think specifically like getting to the point where like our patient is ex- is going to be extubated and we're going to be going towards comfort care right there. Um, uh, we have been trying really hard to just have a meeting with all the inter- multidisciplinary teams, whether it be the chaplain, palliative care, the whole team, RT for sure, PT, PCTs, all of you guys, pharmacy, just having like a full meeting to be able to discuss, okay, this is the plan. These are the meds we're going to use We've already had the chaplain come see them, families at the bedside, like having a full plan. I know we have a great care plan and 
order sets that go in, but Mm -hmm. sometimes we just kind of throw them in and the nurses are just like, okay, here we go. And they may not do all of the steps prior. Mm -hmm. A lot of issues that we've come up with is um, just having like them extubated and the medication isn't even in the Omnicell. And Mm -hmm. those are the things that we try to always make sure that we're ready for. So when it does happen, we have everything that we need to do to make sure that they're comfortable. And for people who are listening, who aren't as familiar with comfort measures and sort of what the order sets look like for you as a nurse, what are the symptoms and like some of the medications that you're using to help patients during these last moments of life? Yeah, um, I was going to get into that. So basically, the order set uh, will get rid of anything that is a medication that they've been on. Like I said, I'm in the neuro ICU. One medication that we do keep on is usually seizure medications because they're uncomfortable. We don't want our patients to seize while being extubated. And uh, if they we think that they're going to last a couple of days, we'll keep them on their Keppra just to make sure that like they do not have any seizures. Another thing we always do, so we'll keep those medications on, reduce like the bowel regimen, all of that, that goes away. But we add in, majority of the time, it's morphine, mor- morphine pushes, Haldol, glycopurylate, a scope patch. We'll do Ativan just as PRNs. We sometimes will do a morphine drip. It all depends on what the patient is on. And Mm -hmm. I know this goes for all ICUs. Every single patient is different. And a lot of the times they're on some sort of medication already. Uh, So whether or not they're dealing with it well, they'll just keep them on, on it, whether it be some sort of analgesic. But for sedatives, we will stick with Ativan or Haldol most of the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had any other issues yeah, no, that, that that pretty much sums it up. When I think about it, I was now now that I'm in the ICU mindset, I always think sort of head to toe. So like neurologically, like you mentioned, preventing seizures, preventing anxiety. Then you start to think about their breathing and sort of preventing air hunger with opiates. Um, some of the cardiac meds we start to take away. And that's ultimately that life support is, you know, as you pull it away, that's what's going to help them drift off to, you know, passing along. But yeah, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head. What do you think your role is in terms of helping family members get through this process? So families sometimes are coping. They're already on the grieving schedule of they're already accepted. They It, it all depends. Then we have our other patients where they were fine literally hours before they tripped and fell and now they're brain dead. Dealing with families is so difficult but we've actually just um i don't know if you know about this at beth Israel. we just started the three wishes project hmm. i actually don't think i've heard of that so uh dr bose and molly hayes are actually incorporating it into all the icus and it's i think the three i know i might butcher this but hopefully not the three wishes is uh patient dignity nursing and all other physicians and medical staff and then also it brings in the family so it's basically Mm -hmm. like three wishes to have everyone have a dignified way to end their life and transition Mm -hmm. comfortably 
Uh, so what the three wishes is, is we actually have ink pads in our units and we will give thumbprints on a keychain. We'll sometimes print out their telly strip and put it in a glass bottle. And we have some ceramic hearts that we'll put on their chest. Mm-hmm. In my experience, we have 100% like all the family loves it so much and it's Mm -hmm. very heartwarming for them of course we always bring in the palliative and the chaplain if needed but that has really brought tears to their family's eyes like they they love that i mean we just support them as much we can Mm -hmm. and explain even though this is where we are it's unfortunate and we're happy that we're here helping you but it's a terrible situation Mm -hmm. we just kind of comfort them yeah it's never easy and i actually had a scenario recently when i was on night float last week where normally as physicians we're not actually always have to be by the bedside for that transition at the end of life because of like you said there's order sets and you guys as nurses are the ones who are really administrating those medications Um, but i was i was involved in a deceased cardiac donor um, scenario where Basically, a patient was declared brain death, and we were going to extubate them in PACU. And then once they passed, they were going to go to the operating room and ultimately have their organs um, salvaged and donated. Mm-hmm. And our role as a physician, and I had a couple nurses with me as well who came from the unit, was basically to watch them from extubation to the point where they went asystolic, lost a pulse for five minutes, and right. then we would call the time of death. Mm-hmm. And This, working up to that moment, I had heard scenarios where patients lasted the whole 120 minutes, two hours, and you just had to stand there and sit there. And I was already sort of anticipating that it could be that. Right. Luckily, it was only 20 minutes, but 20 minutes felt like forever. Right. Because I basically, kind of like what you said, there's only so much you can say in that scenario to make people feel comfortable. And, you know, you basically try my go-to is always like you know it really shows a lot about a person's character seeing all of you family members here there's probably six or seven different family members there and i was like that really shows what type of character this person was just having these loved ones at their bedside and his sister started playing music on her phone and at one point after the exhibition there was a lot of reflecting over his life and joking around and then probably about the 10 minute mark you start to see people get a little tearful and just saying, you know, it's okay to let go. It's okay to let go. Kind of like you were describing with your grandma. And then the thing that really hit me was seeing like grown men go from stoic to just breaking down, bawling and crying. And that's just like, that was something where I was like, man, I really just like, I'm going to focus on this EKG strip and like kind of like zone out because there's just so much emotion that goes on in that situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we now opening our organ donor unit, it's going to happen a lot more frequently, I feel. Uh, Even lately, we've had so many more um, brain death patients, or now we're getting a lot of DCDs as well, death after cardiac death as well. But the only way I kind of try to cope with it as a nurse as well is just kind of like we're prolonging their life where we're helping someone else Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately they're they're too sick to move on so this is the best for them and 
and they're not in any pain right now. That's where I, mm. I reiterate to family as well. Like we aren't hurting them. They're they're comfortable right now. We're treating all of those things. I have one story that has stuck with me. Uh, it was right around Christmas year last Christmas last year. And we had a young patient who was on the treadmill and he uh, ruptured an aneurysm. Hmm. He, by the time he got to us, I believe he went to an outside hospital and then came to us. He had no brainstem reflexes. And within, I think, an hour or two, he was declared brain dead. And it was just terrible timing. His wife was pregnant and it was just... Man awful awful situation and he donated everything i believe he had lungs heart kidneys and liver um and he we did an honor walk which is something that Mm -hmm. we're working on now at bi to really facilitate and ask families if they're interested in it if it's too much for them if not we're happy to do it and we send a text through all the icus for all the nurses and PCTs, EVD or EVS, anyone's that like is available to just kind of stand in the hallway as as the patient uh, rolls down to the operating room and we honor them and show their respect. And we did that for that young man. And uh, it, there was not a dry eye in the hall. There oh, was, bet. oh my gosh. And it was, it, it was almost wholesome to me to be able to see that as much as this was such a terrible shift for me and I just couldn't believe that this was actually happening. I had no words for the family besides like, I'm sorry. And um, that really helped me cope as much Mm -hmm. as I'm sure it did for the family as well, just to see faculty that they had never met in their lives watch them all just in awe of him as he rolled down to the operating room. We actually, he, his favorite song was shipping up to Boston. So they played that as everyone was going. So there was not a dry eye for sure. <laughs> I bet. Wow. But I'll, I'll always keep that in, in the back of my head for sure. Yeah. And in my heart. So I imagine you, in your role, mentor a lot of new nurses who come to the ICU. And like you're describing, there's scenarios that like really hit you hard and you have to find coping mechanisms to go to sleep that night and turn around and do it all again the next day. So how do you encourage nurses to cope with these things that you have to deal with on a regular basis in your job? I mean, everyone has different coping mechanisms. I have been pretty good at compartmentalizing and being able to come home and leave it at work. Uh, It's especially the longer you do it, it's harder to do it. Uh, But it's there. We are so close. Our units are so close. We're friendly. There, we giggle over things that probably shouldn't be something we giggle about. But I mm-hmm. think that also helps us mm-hmm. compartmentalize because mm-hmm. you're able to just kind of defer those things as much as it's a terrible situation. But we realize that we're doing everything we possibly can to make sure that 
this person will have a good outcome. And if they don't, then, and if this is what they want, um, then we'll do everything that we can to make sure that they're comfortable. So I think that's one of the biggest things I always tell the new nurses, you know, like you're not going to save everybody and Mm -hmm. you have to remember that this is what the family and patient wants. Um, I think one of my biggest things is I always tell people that do come in um, and they end up doing okay, make sure you have a healthcare proxy, make sure you actually talk about what you want. Even if you're in your forties, like, what do you want? Do you want to be created? Do you want to be an organ donor? Like tell your family this, this shouldn't Mm -hmm. be something that we don't talk about. Um, It's easy to have a conversation about, yeah, I don't want to live with no leg, but if you are someone that is really interested in donating your organs, like that should be something that you tell your families, um, just to make sure that they know. And it's the worst feeling when the family is at your bedside and you can't make the decision. Um, and they, they say they don't know. So mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. want to be able to live the rest of their lives knowing that they did the right thing. Uh, so I feel like that that's something that we, we really need to push. I think the down like preventative care, but also down at the, primary care level, just Mm -hmm. being proactive, making making sure that we're proactive, making sure that we just talk about the uncomfortable situations and ask them what they want. Mm -hmm. Some people want everything done and that's very perfectly fine. But what they actually want for the end of life care is important uh, for that patient. It Mm -hmm. shouldn't be what the family wants. It should be what you want. You know you work in critical care when these are the topics that come up at holidays right. with your families. <laughs> I know, I know. My family always says they're like, please don't bring another healthcare proxy form to Thanksgiving. Oh, that's She's so like, funny. Carry people away. And I was like, I'm just doing this so we know what's happening going you'll forward. Thank, you'll thank me later. Yeah. yeah. All right, Alyssa, I'm gonna leave you with this question. And you already work at a hospital that is on the forefront of thinking about how we can be better as a medical community to improve end of care life but what how in from your perspective do you think we as medical providers and a community can really help patients and their families get through end of life care Oof. i think that's a tough one i would have to say bringing it up sooner i think a lot of the times as medical professionals, we want to make sure we can fix them. We can do everything possible. Um, even if it's a trach or a peg or this is just intermittent, we don't know if it's going to be like this, bring it up right away. Is this even what the patient wants? I think that is something that would really improve the whole part of end of life just having it be said over a course of the stay for the patient opposed to just having that one conversation in the back room, not at the bedside of the patient, um, being like, well, here here we are. We don't know what else we can do. 
um, I think having the conversations more frequently would probably be bit more beneficial for family um, if the patient is unable to experience and tell us what they actually want. Perfect. Was that a good answer? <laughs> that was excellent. I, I can't agree more because the most, like you said, the most awkward position we can be in as healthcare providers is guessing what a patient would want. And yeah. the default is almost to do everything possible right. when probably majority of the time that's not how anybody would want to live. And most people don't even realize what that subjects them to. Like mm -hmm. getting a trach and peg, you really don't understand what type of life you're going to have until you like talk about these things and you're educated on what that actually means. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me. I'll come on anytime. <laughs> I appreciate it. I just want to echo one thing that you said, which was you guys in the, honestly, all the ICUs, I know you're specifically surgical and neuro, but even like trauma and cardiac, all of you nurses are extremely great at what you do, but you're also very personable. Amika, our program director, warned us that a year of ICU straight can be very hard on you mentally. And she said right around January and February, where you've been doing it for six and now seven months, it's mm -hmm. cold outside, the days are short, it can really start to drain you mentally. And I'm still at the point where I enjoy coming to work every day. And it's because of colleagues like you and all the other nurses in the units who, like you said, you can laugh, you can crack jokes, and right, you right. can really bond with each other over these really hard times. Absolutely. And I know this is a tough podcast, but I'm I'm still smiling. Everything is great. I'm so glad to see you. And I hope we can uh, bring joy to Beth Israel with, with happiness and sadness and dignity, dignity with death. Yes, exactly. All right. Thank Thanks, Alyssa. So much, I'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode of CMO, be sure to hit the subscribe button to the Behind the Drapes podcast, where you can hear more episodes just like this and have the new episodes downloaded to your homepage as they come out. If you want to check out some of the educational content that I put out, check out my social media page on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, and that's at Keywords by Kenny, at Keywords X Kenny, and that'll get you to these short videos that I put out about different educational topics related to anesthesia and the ICU.